This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hey, hey, welcome, Disability Law Show. That time is here again. John Scholes with me, Martin Willems. Good to have uh, Martin again back on the show. Western Canada practice leader, Samfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in this country. Martin representing, of course, BC and Alberta. Ton of questions to get through. I know Martin's brought a lot to the uh, to the show today. And anytime you want to reach out and talk to Martin and his team, you always have questions after listening to the show. It always uh, brings things up in your mind, either for yourself, possibly a family member, a call that's dealing with an insurance company as far as uh, LTD is concerned, you could do so. 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. And I want to remind you that ltdfaq.ca is available fully uh, anonymous and free. Uh, quick notes, easy to be uh, read and learned from uh, from that particular website, ltdfaq.ca. We'll get into the three common misconceptions about long-term disability claims here in just a bit, Martin, but I want to start off and, you know, I guess we'll kind of use this as a, as a case of the day or a week that was. Just got a, an email from a gentleman named Gordon, and I'll read that to you. I know you want to get to this. It says, uh, my wife passed away due to breast cancer in 2021. I submitted a claim for a life insurance benefit as I was the beneficiary. It took the insurance company quite a while to respond when I last spoke with the case manager. She said that they requested my wife's medical records from the time before she had the policy and will have these reviewed to see if the claim will be paid as my wife had high cholesterol. I don't understand how that is relevant as the cause of death was breast cancer. They have not yet denied the claim, but I'm concerned that they will. She purchased this policy in 2019. Oh, thanks, John. And thank you, Gordon, for sending in that question. Uh, it's a difficult time for you. I'm sorry about the circumstances that we have to meet on this. Uh, my condolences on your wife's passing. You know, at our firm, we handle both critical illness, life insurance, and long-term disability claims. And we generally speak about LTD cases uh, for the bigger portion of the show. But I get these types of questions on life insurance every now and again. And it's quite technical. It's different from life from LTD cases in the sense that there's the Insurance Act that provides some guidance as to how a life insurance case should be adjudicated. And when I say that, I mean the following. When you go out and you buy life insurance, when you apply for life insurance, some people get it through their employer so that's just included in the group policy but when you actually go out as an individual and you buy life insurance the process works as follows the insurance company likely will send out a a paramedical person to come and do an interview with you you disclose your medical history because there's a questionnaire that you have to complete and they may do some urine and blood tests as well the responses to those questions and the samples of the urine and the blood get sent away and then the insurance company has an underwriting department and they look at the responses to those questions and the results of the tests to decide whether they are prepared to take you as the applicant on Mm -hmm. to underwrite your insurance. In other words, are they prepared to take the risk with respect to you as an individual knowing your health history? And if they do, they will issue the policy to you, relying on that information that was provided to them because they assess their risk before they issue the policy. And in this case, 
in Gordon's wife's case, she obviously submitted the information and they approved the coverage. I get this question quite often when somebody passes away and it is due to an entirely different illness than what the insurance company then says, well, we wouldn't have issued this coverage because you had something else. What that means is when the insurance or the underwriting department considered the information that was shared with them by the applicant, they would have asked questions like, do you or did you in the past five years have any indication of high cholesterol or did you have anxiety or did you have any other health conditions? And they will go through body part by body part, organ by organ. And when you submit those questions, as I said, they'll decide whether it's something which they're prepared to take on the risk. So in this case, I don't know the exact circumstances, but the fact that they're already referring to high cholesterol, the case has not yet been denied, tells me that potentially they've looked at the initial application for insurance and they've decided that, or come to the conclusion at least, that Gordon's wife probably did not disclose in the policy or in the application rather that she had high cholesterol and this claim is now being sent back to the underwriting department not to decide whether this this is a relevant or this is an appropriate case to pay life insurance on but to make a decision on whether they would actually have issued the policy the coverage in the first instance so it's a bit different in that context now there are two more things to be said and this is quite relevant because this is something that we could use to fight insurance companies on. The Insurance Act does provide that if you've had coverage for two years, more than two years, and then the claim arises, in other words, if Gordon's wife had purchased this policy in 2019, she had the coverage for two years and then passed away after the two years, the insurance company cannot then just say, well, if we knew this, we would not have issued coverage. They now have to prove that there was fraud, which is a strong word, right? They have to prove yeah. a fraud, fraudulent misrepresentation, which could be you deliberately did not advise the insurance company or you willfully you were willfully blind. Whereas if the policy had just been in place for two years, then the insurance company can say, well, if we had known this, this was material to our decision. So you just, whether it was negligent, whether it was just a little mistake, you forgot about it, that doesn't matter. If the policy was in place for less than two years, the insurance company simply has to show that it was material to their decision and they would never have issued the coverage. But there's more to be said about that. Yeah. Sorry. Ultimately, when we get these, uh, we want to see the medical records, we want to see when the policy was issued, and we want to see the policy itself. Because quite often, there is something to be done. We can get our own opinions from underwriters to see whether the policy actually would have been issued. So uh, my, my message to Gordon is, if your claim is denied, and again, I'm sorry for the circumstances that we're speaking about, but if this claim is denied, please contact us because we can review the policy, the medical records, and the basis for the denial, and quite possibly we could assist you. So by all means, if there's anybody else out there listening with respect to a life insurance claim, or with respect to a critical illness, because they quite often work on the same basis. Please make contact with us and we'll review the documents. We do it for free. We can give you your options for free. And if there's something that we can do, we'll assist you. Gordon, nicely done. Appreciate the email. Well done on that one. And please uh, go further and reach out to Martin and his team. You'd be wise to do so, and I'm sure you're planning to as you're listening to us uh, today. The number one eight five five eight two one. 
5900. Let's uh, let's keep it going here, pal. Let's get into our topic for the uh, for the day. We got to get to some more emails later on, so we have got a full show. But uh, three common misconceptions about LTD long term disability claims. First one is a huge one. If we talk about this, if not every show, at least uh, you know a couple times a uh, couple times a month for sure. Total disability does not mean, in fact, totally disabled. Total disability is what the layman would think, right? That is so true. And John, you know, you're right. We speak about this at almost every show and Mm -hmm. probably devote a whole show to just this one question. Uh, I'll give some background as well. You know, I've been handling disability claims now for many years and I've been speaking to doctors. I've done presentations to psychologists. And this is always something that comes up during those presentations and during those discussions, because even in the medical field, there is a misconception as to what totally disabled means right. in the context of a long-term disability policy, be it through a group policy that you have with your employer or with an individual policy that you went out and you purchased yourself from an insurance company. So let's get into that discussion. Total disability, if I heard you say outside of the context of disability claims, meaning group contracts or individual contracts, if I said totally disabled, Mostly, everybody would say to me, well, that sounds quite serious. It sounds to me like it's something where the person is either comatose or bedridden or they're completely incapable of doing anything for themselves. And it is quite a process to get people to understand and move into the mindset that that is not what total disability means when we speak about it in the context of a contract. So... What do I mean when I speak about a contract? When you have a group policy with your employer or you've gone out and you bought your own disability policy, that policy is a contract. And the contract has rights and obligations and definitions. And total disability is, you know, it's the most important definition in the contract. What does total disability mean? Hmm. And again, In total disability policies or long-term disability policies, we're speaking about an inability to perform your job or at some point any other job, your occupation. So it's not total disability within the aspect of your activities of daily living. Can you put on your own socks? Can you prepare your own meals? Can you eat by yourself? It is total disability in terms of your employment. Can you perform the essential duties of your own occupation? That's basically what the first phase would mean, and that's the own occupation phase. And then beyond that, it is, can you perform the essential duties of another occupation for which you have the transferable skills? And to understand that, we have to look at what are the restrictions and limitations? What are the functional impairments? And it's solely focused on your job. If you're totally disabled within the meaning of the policy, it means you have restrictions and limitations that prevent you from performing those essential duties. If you are able to, as I said, eat by yourself, dress yourself, that's not the consideration yet. And to get people to understand, as I say, it has been quite a thing because I speak to doctors about this often. They quite often think it's partial disability, but it's not because it's a contractual term. Mm -hmm. So in the context of total disability in policies, always look at what the definition is in that particular policy. And if an insurance company denies you saying that you're not totally disabled, do not be discouraged by thinking, well, yes, I can dress myself, therefore they're probably right. That's not how it is assessed. It is, can you perform the duties of your occupation? And if there is a denial on that basis, I love these cases. Have a discussion with us because we surely can assist. 
And with that, we will get into a wee break and get back to more of your emails and questions. In the meantime, reach out to us. Get involved. Help at disabilityrights.ca and 1-855-821-5900. We'll continue after that break. This is the Disability Law Show. All right, welcome back, Disability Law Show. Martin Willems is here. Good to have him along on the show. Savannah off this week, but Martin's doing all the heavy lifting. You want to reach out to Martin, especially BC and Alberta, covering Western Canada, the practice leader there. It is 1-855-821-5900. Email anywhere, of course, help at disabilityrights.ca. We were just getting into the three common misconceptions about long-term disability. We covered off what total disability means. By the way, call Martin if you if you miss any of this, you want to recap he could totally fill you in, no problem. Number two, insurers can't ignore what your doctors say. No kidding. No kidding. Jeez, John, how many times did we get this question? <laughs> yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, and we'll probably get one later in the show, I'm sure, but let, let's see how we respond to this one. So insurers cannot ignore what your doctors say. We should say that five times over because yeah. that is a true statement. Insurance companies quite often would say in their denial letters, well, your doctor may say, that you are unable to perform the duties of your own occupation, but we disagree. And in that same letter, it may say that it's just one factor that we consider when we assess disability claims. We do consider what the doctor says, but that's not everything. Well, there's some truth to that. But ultimately, who is the entity? Who is the person in authority, I suppose, who has the medical knowledge, who is able to give an opinion? on whether you are disabled within the meaning of the policy or whether you are not. I've seen many cases that have been denied and each and every one of those cases, there was a family doctor or a specialist or, or you know, a psychiatrist or a chronic pain specialist or a neurologist or a neurosurgeon supporting that the person is disabled within the meaning of the policy. And yet these cases are denied because we see quite often the ones that are denied, right? So the insurance company will have that position, well, we've listened to your doctor, but we don't really have to consider what your doctor says in that context to make our decision. And my position on this is always the same. You know, even if the insurance companies say, well, we've had our own doctors review the claim, review the information that has been provided, and our doctor disagrees with what your doctor is saying with respect to your capacity, or with respect to the treatment that you are engaged in. Like for example, they would say, we think you would be better treated if you engaged in physiotherapy, or we think you would have been better treated if you had been given this type of medication. I mean, I can understand why doctors get so mad and upset when insurers deny their patients' claims, because ultimately, again, going back to my initial comment, who is the authority here to make a decision, or at least to give an informed opinion as to whether a person is disabled. And it doesn't just go with only on that um, prospect. It is, is the person disabled, but also what type of treatment should be given? Mm-hmm. What type of rehab provisions should apply in terms of the person's condition? So again, going back to insurers should not be ignoring what the doctors say. It's a true statement. And if that does happen, reach out to us because quite often there is this misconception that the insurance company, because they're the ones in authority, if you want to call it that, because they're the ones who make the decisions, they are right. And there's this big, scary entity, and you're just a little person making the claim. You know, we can, we see, equalize that. We can step in and we can deal with the insurance companies if they did deal, if they did deny your case on the basis that they were ignoring your doctor's advice and ignoring your doctor's opinion on whether you are disabled. 
Well, you often say, you know, it's a David and Goliath situation, but we all know how that battle ended up, right? So, uh, again, <laughs> don't don't sit back and just take it. Reach out to Martin anytime, 1-855-821-5900. Three common misconceptions about LTD claims. Number three is this, insurers can force you back to work before you're actually ready. Again, how often do we get this question? So, yep. Insurers cannot force you back to work before you are ready. My position on this is always the same. The person, and it goes back to the f- number two, insurers cannot ignore what your doctors say. If you are not ready to return to work, I would expect that you have your doctor's support that you are not ready to return to work. Insurance companies are motivated to end benefits because it's a for-profit organization. There are shareholders in place. So if benefits are being paid, the goal will be to look at return to work focused treatment. And if the insurance company turns around and says, well, we think you are now ready to go back to work. If you are not ready, and if you have your doctor's support, I would suggest that you should be listening to your doctor because your doctor is the entity or is the person who knows you, who has been seeing you on a regular basis and who would have been involved in the treatment, who would be aware as to what is happening in your life with your symptoms, your restrictions, and your limitations. The insurance company, on the other hand, is speaking to you by phone. They haven't met you. They haven't seen you. They haven't assessed you. And they will quite often, as I said before, have their own doctors assess the medical information without actually having even seen you or met you or even spoken with you on the phone. So if there is a push to return to work, the first thing you do is you speak to your doctors. And if your doctors are supportive that you remain off work and the insurance company is still pushing that you have to go back to work, well, claim is probably going to be denied at the point if you say, I'm not going to go back. And if that does happen, again, we are here to assist because I see lots of cases being denied on this basis. I'm, I've actually heard from somebody this week who said to me, well, I, I'm, I've been forced back to work because I cannot become homeless, which has now oh. added to the mental health restrictions and limitations because the person already has anxiety in addition to chronic pain Mm -hmm. so with the threat of we're going to cut you off if you don't go back to work she has gone back to work now and the condition has worsened so not only is she going to go off work again but now the claim that has to be paid is going to have to be paid for a longer period of time simply because she did what the insurance company told her she has to do even against the doctor's advice and the result is a worsening disability and there's going to probably have to be a legal claim now because and that is what we do we can assist it through this very difficult period and make the insurance company pay the benefits that they should have been paying and not have forced them back to work well we always say you know your own doctor your medical team is the gatekeepers of your health what if it's based on the uh, the fact say well our doctor says you need to go back to work our doctor has read your files so on and so forth what's your stance at that point you know, it's the same thing that you've that we've said before. If yeah. they say that their doctors have said this, well, that they even assess you, and sometimes they do. You know, sometimes they do have a well, they call them independent, an independent <laughs> medical examiner review the well, meet with the person and assess them maybe for an hour or two, and then make a recommendation with respect to treatment or give an opinion on whether the person is ready to return to work. My position remains the same. You have a treating doctor. Your doctor is the person who has and can make an informed opinion on whether you are ready to return to work. And your doctor, I would think, and this is not a controversial statement, would have your best interest at heart. 
Yep. Doctors don't want people to sit at home, right? It's it's not good not to be active and be involved in the workplace. We understand that. But if the doctor is saying, you should not be going back to work, I'm concerned that your condition is going to get worse. I'm concerned that if you do go back to work, you know, many people say this to me as well, I'm concerned I go back to work and then my employer fires me the moment that I get there. And then what do you do? The insurance company says, well, you went back to work, you're fine. We don't have a claim anymore because you've been terminated now. So my position on this is if their doctors say that you are ready to return to work, I say listen to your own doctor. Get your your treatment doctor's advice. And again, if they say you're not ready to return to work, my recommendation, and I'm not a doctor, I would say consider what your doctor says and consider following your doctor's advice. And if they do deny you, you know, we can pursue a legal claim here, and yep. we've got your doctor's support to show that you're still disabled. Help at disabilityrights.ca, the reach out through email, and the phone number for Martin and his team, one 821 5900 Let's get down to uh, Steve's email here. It says, hey, Martin, I lift uh, heavy equipment at work and hurt my back. I now have chronic pain shooting down my leg and cannot work. I have a private policy that I bought 10 years ago. The insurance company is saying that my claim is ending after a few months, as my injury is not a uh, not is as a sickness, not an accident. How does that make sense? I did not have problems with my back before I hurt it. How can an injury be a sickness, and why does it matter? Well, okay, Steve, thank you for sending in that email or that question. This is a it's another one where the policy is a bit different from your regular long-term disability policies. So, and I can see that by the fact that Steve says he purchased a private policy. I'm going to guess here, but I think I'm right on this, that the policy that Steve bought is a disability policy that provides full benefits mm. only if the disability is as a result of an accident and not a sickness. Right. And the, the reason why I say that is because they're suggesting to him that, yes, they may have paid for a few months because of that injury, but now they're denying the claim because they're taking the position that it is a sickness. And it is confusing, but the reason I think I'm comfortable to respond to this question is because I've seen this so many times before. There are different policies out there, and especially when it comes to someone's back or their neck, or in other words, the spine. Almost everybody has what is called degenerative disc changes in their back. The older you get, especially if you're working in a physical capacity, if there's going to be imaging through an MRI or a CT scan, invariably there's going to be a finding that you have disc changes, right? As we get older, there's degeneration. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a sickness that's preventing you from working because, as Steve says, he was working. He didn't have problems with his back. So I'm going to assume that I believe what happened here is the insurance company got a hold of the MRI or the CT scan of some form of imaging that was taken after he injured his back. And it may have mentioned that there is a finding that there are some degenerative changes in his back. And now they're latching onto that because degenerative disc disease is a sickness, I suppose, but that's not the cause of the disability here. Now, not going to give legal advice on this point because they, it, it, this can be tricky because mm-hmm. the definition for accident will be specific to it ex- excludes sickness, and si- even if it is indirectly related to a sickness. So on this one, we would have to review what the policy says. We would have to review the medical records, the doctor's opinion. And quite often, you know, when we speak about doctor's opinions, 
I've had a bunch of these cases where I would approach the doctor and the doctor would give an opinion stating that, yes, my client or my patient had these changes in their back, but the reason why this person is unable to work is because of the accident that happened, because of the trauma that was sustained to the spine. Always interesting cases, these, but you know, I think we can assist here, but we would have to review the policy, we'd have to review the records, and potentially, you know, speak to the doctor as well. Sorry about that, Steve, that this is happening. Steve, you know how to reach out now through the phone, one 821 5900 want to bounce over to uh, Russell. He's got a shorter email, so we'll get that in the remaining time before we break. Says, uh, hey, Martin, I was recently let go from my job, and I was offered severance. I didn't sign the papers yet. I'm currently on LTD, but that is coming to an end in three months because I've reached the two-year mark. My doctors say that I can't go back to work yet, and I'm just trying to understand what my options are. Uh, now that I have no job and I'm being cut off disability. Wow, I'm 53 years old and I worked as a product engineer. Well, uh, quite a lot there. I, I would firstly say that, you know, at our firm, we have employment lawyers as well. So there's an yes. employment component to this question. And we've, we've got lawyers in Alberta, Ontario, and BC. So I would love to have one of them at least discuss with you the severance component to this. But it also goes back to the question again, what do I do if I don't have a job? Uh, The bigger question is, if your doctor is supporting that you cannot work, you should be disputing this denial. If there is a denial in place, because the definition may change after the two-year mark, but if your doctor still says you cannot work in an occupation that is commensurate to what you were doing before, in other words, something which you've got the transferable skills for, don't accept that that is the case that the insurance company can just deny you reach out to us because these are the types of cases we see on a regular basis when they get denied at that two-year mark. Russell, we'll take a short break. We might uh, return to that. If not, we'll move on to more questions and emails. You can send them along anytime. It is help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number to reach Martin's crew, 1-855-821-5900. This is a disability law show. Stick around. We're coming right back. Welcome back. Disability Law Show, reaching out anytime. Give you a couple different ways. Free and anonymous website, mydisabilityquestions.com. It's searchable, so your question that you're thinking of may have been asked previously. Look for it or type in something similar. If it doesn't come up, leave it there. Martin and his team will get to it. You can also email, good old-fashioned email, help at disabilityrights.ca and phone number one 821 5900 Want to bounce over to an email from Olivia. Uh, says, I missed the notice and proof of claim period when I applied for long-term disability, which I have with my employer. I missed it by just over a year. I received short-term disability benefits for six months and did not understand that I needed to submit a separate claim. I have depression and anxiety and have such difficulty completing forms. I find it overwhelming and stressful every time I have to sit down and complete forms. It feels like my symptoms are triggered all over again. I finally did submit the forms, but my claim was denied as I missed these deadlines. I've been seeing a psychiatrist and counselor regularly, and they support that I cannot work. Is there any way that my claim can be approved? Thank you, Olivia. Very, very stressful situation that you're experiencing. I'm sorry for that. Uh, But, you know, the good thing that you did is you sent in this question because there there is an option here. It's possible that we could assist I'll go back to my initial comment when we started speaking today. Uh, Policies are contracts, and contracts have provisions. So these policies, these contracts, 
have what is called proof of claim and notice of claim provisions. And they're not all the same, but generally it would be that you have to provide notice of claim within 30 days of having the disability arise and then proof of claim for some period after that, be it 90 days or a longer period. So what happened here is Olivia, in the state that she was in, having anxiety and depression, um, obviously that would have affected her cognition as well. And I've heard this many times before from people when they have to complete forms that they struggle with it, they procrastinate, they feel that they're being triggered because they have to speak and be about their disability and be faced with it all over again. So what she did here is she applied for short-term disability, which was probably was an easier application right. made through the employer potentially, and assumed that at some point when the short-term would end, it would have transitioned into long-term. But it's possible that long-term is being offered by a different insurance company, so she missed the application deadlines. I mean, she was realizing that it took her some time to actually apply because she had to gather herself and gather the strength and the mental wherewithal to apply. And now the insurance company is relying on the provisions in the policy, which would be those notice and proof of claim provisions, which again is a contract. And they're saying to Olivia, look, you missed these deadlines. We're not going to approve your claim. We're not even going to look at the merits of your claim to see whether you are disabled. But what, we, what do we have here? We have somebody who is struggling. She's seeing a psychiatrist on a regular basis. She's seeing a counselor on a regular basis. They both still support that Olivia cannot work. So through the process of a legal claim, there's something called relief against forfeiture, yeah. which is a legal term. And I'm not going to say that is going to be applied in Olivia's case, but at least it is an argument that we can make. And the way that it works is the court, based on a principle called equity, will look outside of these provisions, which would mean that Olivia did not adhere to the policy terms, but is there a reason why we should allow Olivia to still have a claim? And I would say that in this context, considering that she had been paid for six months, another insurance company or this insurance company, whoever it may be, did have the benefit of reviewing the clinical records, and she has been seeing a psychiatrist and counselor regularly throughout this period, the insurance company, I don't think, will be able to say that, look, we've been deprived by the opportunity, with the opportunity to actually review the case or to be involved. So there is an argument that can be made. You know, again, when you receive a letter from an insurance company saying that we are relying on our contractual exclusions, People would think, oh, my goodness, it's a contract. I'm out of time. Mm -hmm. I don't have an option yet. Similar yeah. to a pre-existing condition exclusion, which is also a defined term in a contract. If you see a letter like that, if you get a denial like that, please don't just accept that what they're saying is correct. Please don't just accept that you don't have any hope or you have no options. Because you do. We can review the policy. We can review the circumstances. We can review the clinical records and the particular facts because every case is different. And if there is a potential case that can be argued, we will say that to you. Of course, if we think that there is no claim, we will say that to you as well. But you won't know unless you reach out to us. And you know, I, I try and find a way around every denial. Sometimes yeah. we cannot do it, but in many, many instances we can. And once you have a lawyer advocating for you, advising you, taking over the discussions so that you don't have to deal with the insurance company anymore. It 
alleviate some of that anxiety. And you know what? Ultimately, hopefully we can get you some money from the insurance company so you can focus on your treatment and focus on getting better. That's a big thing that sometimes we fail to mention that you just did is once you guys get involved, once a claim is made, that insurance company not only does talk to you, but they cannot reach out to your client, right? Give me some details on that. You know, that, that is such a big thing because I say that to every prospective person that I speak with. Many say to me, you know, I've been dealing with the case manager, the case manager, not, not in all cases, but the case manager is being rude to me, is being aggressive mm. with me, my anxiety is being triggered. I just don't want to do this anymore. And then I can say, yes, if we get involved, the insurance company cannot speak to you anymore. They cannot contact you. They cannot send you emails. They cannot send you letters. All communications go through us. We are the buffer. We are the personnel fighting for you. You will be speaking to us. We will be giving you updates, but you don't need to say one single word to them and they have no right to contact you at all during the time that we represent you. So we do take away that stress, which is another great thing to be to have a lawyer on a disability claim. It is time for a short break. Before we get to the conclusion, the last couple of emails of the show to reach out to our good pal Martin Willems here, who, by the way, Western Canada practice leader, Sam Firu to Mark and LLP. You can do it by phone, toll free, of course, 1-855-821-5900. And the email we always draw from is help at disabilityrights.ca. And we'll continue with the Disability Law Show. Stand by. All right, welcome back, Disability Law Show. Toll-free number, reaching out to Martin and his team, 1-855-821-5900. Email help at disabilityrights.ca. The website, just disabilityrights.ca. You'll find uh, lots of information to be uh, to be read and gone over there. Plus, on the media tab, you'll have links to our long-running TV show as well. If you haven't caught that, uh, disabilityrights.ca, 30 minutes each. And again, you can learn a ton and get some information from those. Uh, who's next? Jerry is next. Jerry says, uh, hey, Martin, my company has switched benefit providers. Well, I've been on disability for the past year. When the previous insurer approved the claim, they said in the approval letter that the own occupation period is 24 months, two years. The new disability policy has an 18-month own occupation policy. Does this mean I have to go back to work at the end of 18 months? What if I'm still unable to work? Thank you, Jerry. Uh, good question. And it's not one that we see that often. So mm-hmm. going back to what do we have when we're speaking about a disability policy? It's a contract. So there are a few things that I have to say on this. When you went off work, Jerry, you went off work when the previous policy was still in place. In other words, the one that had the 24-month occupation period in place. That is the policy that governs your claim. Because your claim vested when that company was the insurer. Whether the new company now has a different own occupation period should not matter because your claim is not being adjudicated or being paid by the new insurance company. The claim arose when the old company was still in place and it is being uh, considered by that insurance company and being paid by that insurance company. So do you have to go back to work at the end of 18 months well, at the end of 24 months, I suppose is the question. Uh, in theory, though, it would be at the end of the 24 months and not at the end of the 18 months. But the bigger question for you should be, should you go back to work at all if you're still unable to work? Because the question that Jerry does ask is, what if I am still unable to work? I'd suggest you get in touch with your doctor. You would also have an idea whether you've had any recovery or whether you feel better to be returning to work. Remember, 
when we speak about the change of definition, which is what we're talking about here, is the own occupation period, you had to show that you were unable to perform the duties of your own occupation. Mm-hmm. Then that definition changes. So if you're speaking about what happens at the end of that own occupation period, it means that the insurance company is now going to consider whether you are able to perform the duties of any other occupation. Right. And that would be any occupation for which you've got the transferable skills based on your education, your training, and your experience. And it doesn't have to be a occupation or a job with your current employer. The assessment is, is there any job out there in your region, at least, or in your province, which you've got the transferable skills to perform? And that is a discussion that you should have with your doctor. Because if your doctor says no, and you feel that you are unable to return to work, forget about what the new policy says. If the insurance company forces you to return to work or denies your claim, as I've said before, listen to your doctor, reach out to us, because we could step in and possibly, hopefully, probably, pursue a legal claim on your behalf. Jerry, nicely done. You want to follow up with a phone call and have a lengthier conversation with Martin, you could do so. That's one 821 5900 Got time to bounce down to uh, to Heather. Heather's up next. Says, uh, guys, I, attend a, uh, I attended a medical examination with a psychiatrist and when I was told by the insurance company to do so, found it very stressful. I did not think about asking whether I had to attend the appointment, but now I wonder. The insurance company says that the psychiatrist believes I can get back to work in three months, so they are ending my benefits then. They don't want to give me a copy of the report. How can I get it? Also, I've been seeing my own psychiatrist regularly. She does not think I am ready to return to work and said that if I did return to work, I will very likely have a relapse. I don't know if the insurance company has gotten updated information from her. They also said my medication needs to be changed. I am so confused as to what I should do. That's from uh, from Heather. Oh, goodness, Heather. Thank you for sending in that question. And again, you know, this is a question that we see so often. We've discussed some of these responses, I suppose, which are applicable to your question earlier, but I'm going to go through this step by step. So the first question is, you attended a, what it would be called an independent medical examination with a psychiatrist at the request of the insurance company, and you're wondering whether you had to do so. Going back to the terms of the policy, which again is a contract, most policies do allow the insurance company to have the insured, meaning you, Heather, assessed by one of its own experts to get an opinion. Obviously, the specialty of this, the uh, person they send you to must be appropriate to the condition. And it sounds in this case like it was because there is a mental health component here. It's a mental health disability. Heather is seeing her own psychiatrist. So what the insurance company did is they decided to pick somebody outside of Heather's treatment team and had Heather assessed by that person. Not surprisingly, that psychiatrist, on the from the sounds of it, said that Heather actually will be ready to return back to work in three months. Not sure how that assessment was made and is also making some recommendations with respect to Heather's medications. Heather is wondering how she can get a copy of the report. You would often have insurance companies say, look, we're not going to provide you with a copy of the report. What Heather should be pushing them to do, though, then is have them send a copy of that report to Heather's psychiatrist. And Heather's psychiatrist is saying that Heather should not be returning to work at this time and that she's not able. And very, very importantly, is saying that Heather will likely suffer a relapse if she did. So there are, you know, 
alarm bells going off. There are red flags here. If Heather does go through with a return to work, the expectation from somebody who knows her, who is familiar with her, and who has the medical credentials to give an opinion on this, is concerned that Heather will suffer a relapse. So my first instant, first recommendation would be have Heather return to the psychiatrist, have her psychiatrist review the insurance company psychiatrist report to see exactly what it says. Because there's also a recommendation made that the medication should be changed, which is quite a radical thing to say to somebody, you know, mental health or antidepressants, if that is what is being provided here. Yeah. That, that's not a little thing. And many people have adverse effects. Many people become even suicidal. So you cannot simply change medications. And again, either has a psychiatrist who has been walking the road with her and knows what her treatment is and knows how she responds to medications. So her psychiatrist, Heather's psychiatrist, should be deciding on what medications she should be taking and whether any changes should be made. And more to the point, if she feels that Heather is unable to return to work, like we said before, she can write a letter to the insurance company and advise why it is that Heather is unable to return to work. But more to the point, Heather can, in that context, contact us because we can also speak to Heather's psychiatrist if we work to get involved and fight the denial. Because clearly what is happening here is the insurance company is building up the medical evidence at their end to bolster and make stronger the basis for their denial. And if we get involved, we do exactly the same. I will get involved. We will speak with Heather's psychiatrist and get a report to rebut everything that is said in that denial letter and potentially in that report as well. So Heather, reach out to us, please. Heather, that number, one 821 5900 And with that, we are done for another show. Appreciate it. Martin Willems right there. You can reach out any time as a Western Canada practice leader and partner. Here's how you get a hold of him, one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions, go to mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.